The Biden administration is calling on all agencies to staff up on experts in all things artificial intelligence. That's according to an executive order that President Joe Biden signed on Monday. The White House is also calling on agencies to set policies for how they will use AI tools internally to further the business of government. For an update on all of this, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins us with more. Jory, welcome. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. So what does this EO mean for federal hiring, first off? Well, more than any other executive order of its kind that we've seen before, this one really has more to do's for federal agencies and internal use of AI within the federal government more than any of these other ones that we've seen. And hiring is a huge part of it here. This executive order directs the Office of Personnel Management to lead a government-wide AI talent surge. And we'll get some more details on that soon. But a senior administration official briefed reporters on this EO Sunday evening, and he said that agencies are really going to be encouraged to use the full breadth of hiring tools at their disposal, including direct hiring authority to get new talent in the door. And that includes a couple of programs meant to target early and mid-career technologists and get them into government. Those include the U.S. Digital Service, U.S. Digital Corps, and the Presidential Innovation Fellowship. All right. And so where can these applicants go if they're looking to work in the government as part of this new AI executive order? Well, what's really helpful about this latest effort is that the administration has updated AI.gov. It now features a portal for potential job applicants to scope out all of the opportunities that are available to them. It has a link to good old usajobs.gov, which is just the government-wide portal for all openings, but also gives applicants a heads up about those fellowship programs that I mentioned just a moment ago, and some agency-specific initiatives that are also trying to get off the ground here, specifically around AI and this emerging technology. AI.gov in its update says that agencies are really looking for AI talent to assess, pilot, and launch AI use cases within these federal agencies. So this is what agencies have been waiting for, is this guidance on AI. But what else are they getting from the administration when it comes to artificial intelligence? Yeah, this executive order has been long anticipated, and there's more to come for agencies in terms of this guidance. The Office of Management and Budget is expected to pretty soon release additional guidance to agencies about how they should use AI in their day-to-day work. We caught a draft version of that OMB memo, uh, which has not yet come out. But what we've understood about that so far is that when it does release, it will give agencies about 10 new to-dos around AI, and that includes naming a chief AI officer and developing an AI strategy that will be available to the public for them to take a look at. We're speaking here with Federal News Network reporter Jory Heckman. So it seemed as if a lot of the concern wasn't necessarily pointed towards agencies. There's a lot of concern about what tech companies can do with this technology. What does this executive order mean for those companies working under that realm? Yeah, there's a lot mentioned there for them as well. Under this EO, it cites the Defense Production Act and will require companies developing any foundational AI model uh, that poses a serious risk to national security 
for national public health to notify the federal government when they're training that model and get in touch with some red team experts within the government to uh, take a look at that and understand the full ramifications of what they're working on. That's a heavier hand than this administration or recent administrations have taken around AI. What we've heard initially from industry is that in a lot of cases, most companies aren't working on those foundational AI models. They're working on things that are a little more downstream of that. But still, this is a big deal that some companies will have to uh, be mindful of the federal government wanting a more active role in vetting this technology. There's a lot to unpack here, and I'm sure that the different roles will be assessed as things start to get implemented. But what are some of the agency-specific actions that are mandated in the EO right now? Yeah, this is a real whole-of-government effort here. Some of the specifics, the National Institute of Standards and Technology will develop standards for that red teaming, that testing of these AI systems that we mentioned just a moment ago. The Department of Homeland Security will take those NIST standards and apply those to national critical infrastructure sectors, you know, utilities like water and electricity, things that really just are foundational to the country running. And then the Department of Energy, along with DHS, will help out with looking at those threats to critical infrastructure, those threats that AI pose, and that includes cybersecurity risks. The Department of Health and Human Services will establish a new safety program that will receive reports of harm or unsafe use of AI, specifically in the healthcare space. And then the State Department will work along with the Commerce Department to work with partner countries and establish some international rules of the road for AI. Because one thing the White House has made clear here is that it's not particularly helpful if only the U.S. plays by this set of rules. They need to have partners that follow that same sheet of music when it comes to this technology for just the broad terms of what it can be used for and what it can't be used for. All right. So what's next? What are they going to be releasing as far as further policy guidance for agencies working with AI? Yeah. So, Eric, we'll see that OMB memo for agencies pretty soon. Hard to say when exactly, but soon is what we've been told. One other thing the White House wanted to highlight here is that they are not alone in trying to advance this kind of policy work. One other thing the White House is trying to highlight here is that Congress needs to advance legislation and pass legislation that will further its priorities when it comes to AI safety, security and equity. What the administration recognizes is that EOs come and go with each administration, and while it's the law of the land for this administration, they want to make sure that there's some staying power for these goals. And what we've seen with uh, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer having these AI summits on Capitol Hill, there's definitely some interest there to advance some legislation and get some of this on the books for years to come. All right. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. We'll keep an eye out for that further guidance and definitely have you back on. Thanks, Eric. Absolutely. And you can find more of Jory's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important, so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. 
what's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. 
and even your title, Chief People Officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title, Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful so it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules, can we make it a menu, can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role. So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things 
through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.